You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast. I'm Shawnee Carruthers. Growing up, my son was on a competitive soccer travel team. Most weekends, we were on the road. He was constantly in game time situations and spent very little time learning new skills or practicing current ones. I've noticed that in the classrooms and in the workplace, we sometimes forget the value of noticing and reflecting because we stay in cycles of performance. The performance paradox is a reminder that being in a stage of chronic performance doesn't allow for growth and instead achieves the opposite. As learners across the country search for meaning, explore curiosities, and build their confidence through valuable learning experiences, this conversation will help frame why learning is as important as performing. To help unpack this further, I'm joined by Eduardo Brasino, speaker, author, and facilitator. His new book, The Performance Paradox, Turning the Power of Mindset into Action, was selected as a must-read by the Next Big Idea Club, which is curated by Susan Kane, Malcolm Gladwell, Adam Grant, and Dan Pink. Welcome, Eduardo. Thank you, Shani. Great to be here. So happy to be here with you. Um, I was sharing with you earlier that I was reading The Performance Paradox and Truly, I've learned a lot so far, so I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. Um, but can we just start with what is the performance paradox? The performance paradox is the counterintuitive phenomenon that if we focus only on performing, our performance suffers. Our results go down if we're focused only on getting results. And that's, that is a paradox. Um, it, it actually... It, it does maximize immediate results. Like if we want to have, like perform the best in a soccer game, like, like your son, right? If I focus on performance during that game, I'm going to maximize performance during that game. But if I stay stuck in always performing, then I stay stuck, I stagnate, and I don't kind of get better over time. And so I, when I was growing up and I was playing soccer and I was you know, thinking that I was practicing guitar or practicing soccer, I would approach the practices like I would pra approach the performance. I would just play a song when I was practicing the guitar or in soccer practice. I, I just thought it was just more time playing soccer. And at times I hear from athletes that even in practice, they're trying to sh prove how good they are so that they can get playing time during the game. And what I didn't realize is like, if you look at a great athlete, like a professional world-class athlete, uh, we, we tend to think that the reason they're so good at what they do is because they spend a lot of hours doing that thing, but that's not true. Like if, if they are having a trouble with a particular move during the match, they're going to try to avoid that move during the match. But then in practice, they'll go to the coach and say, coach, I have to practice this move. And that's a very different activity and area of attention than what they do during the game. And so what happens is most of us uh, end up most of the time or almost all the time like being stuck in chronic performance, whether it's at work or in our lives, and that gets us to be at the same level of competence and not achieve the, the results and the outcomes that we could. And so a lot of that you mentioned, like when they're, you know, not in the chronic performance, but when they're truly in that learning zone, you re you gave lots of references in the book and you, I think you referenced like um, Ipsy and Beyonce and like what kind of processes they follow. So what is the difference between the learning zone and the performance zone? Like what, difference, what differentiates them and how do they impact skill improvement? Yeah, so if, if, the, if the challenge is that chronic performance harms our results, then what's the solution? The solution, like, as you're saying, 
is to embed the learning zone into our lives, to build learning zone habits. And what, are, what is the learning zone? Well, the, the performance zone is when we focus on doing things as best as we know how, trying to minimize mistakes. And the learning zone is when we leap into the unknown, when we try things that may or may not work, uh, when we solicit feedback, when we ask questions, when we listen, when we like examine our mistakes and discuss our mistakes. Those are all things that are different than just focusing on getting the job done as best as we know how, trying to minimize mistakes. And um, what the learning zone looks like for different people, different circumstances, it can look differently. Like there's different learn learning strategies that work for different skills and for different contexts. But what's important for us to get clear about when and how do we want to perform, when and how do we want to learn, and when and how do we want to engage in learning while doing? So doing doing things in a way that's also going to lead to improvement, which I think is the greatest opportunity for most of us because we're so busy, we have so much to do. The, the biggest opportunity is in shifting the way we get things done so that we're both getting things done and getting better and not just getting things done. Eduardo, but what happens when we feel like we don't really have time and what's really servicing for me is your yogurt example in the book where they're like, Oh, we can do this quickly and we can scale it because we have the money to do so. And then they end up failing because they didn't really take the time to like spend some quality time in that learning zone because they just kind of needed to make it happen. Uh, and so how do we make time to sit in that learning zone, like truly sit in it? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, the, the example you're referring to was uh, General Mills, which is a large food uh, com consumer packaged goods company. And um, they had a really exciting new idea for a pro for yogurt that they were very excited about and they wanted to test it in the market. And what they learned, though, was that to produce a small amount of the yogurt cost pretty much the same thing as to produce a large amount of the yogurt. And so they thought it through and they thought, OK, well, if we just produce a larger amount, which is going to cost the same amount of money, we could just be do a bigger test, you know, and, and they ended up doing a test in like 20% of the US. And they thought, okay, like if it works, then we'll be that much further ahead than the competition and, and, and we're, we'll, we're going to dominate this market. And what happened was that they, they did that and they realized that in some of the markets, the yogurt was performing well, but in most of them, it wasn't. And they pretty quickly learned why. But then changing, like iterating became a lot harder, more burdensome because they had to manage a lot more relationships with the retailers. Um, and there were a lot of more logistics involved. And so because it took so long, a lot of retailers just lost faith in the product that was taking up valuable shelf space. And... Um, and, and so they, they said, we don't want this product, and they had to discontinue the product, even though they still thought the product with the, the changes would have been very successful. And, and so what, what that points to is that sometimes even experimentation, they were experimenting to, to find out whether this product worked and how to make it better. But the way they went about the experiment, experiment was too performance oriented. It was too focused on the results and not really clear on the main point of an experiment, which is to learn uh, so that you can really make the product great before you start scaling. Um, now, for most of us, your question is about like time, right? We have so much to do in so little time. What can we do? Um, one, I think the biggest opportunity is in shifting how we work, how we perform. And an example of this is uh, there was a research study that was done on people where they asked people whether they thought that intelligence could be uh, changed or whether intelligence was fixing people. And then they put these people in a brain scan machine 
to see whether their brains work differently depending on whether they thought that they could get smarter or not. And, and, and they were doing, they were solving problems inside of the machine. That's what they were doing. And what they found is that for the people in a fixed mindset who thought that intelligence couldn't change, their brain was most active when they were getting information about what, whether they got each problem right or wrong. That's what they were most interested in. And their brain was not very active at all. It wasn't paying attention in a different time, which was when the people in a growth mindset's brain was most active. Now, the people in a growth mindset also paid attention to what they got right or wrong. But then at, their, their brain was even more active when they were getting information about what they, what they did wrong, what, what mistakes they made. So they could learn from those mistakes. And then they became they performed better in the subsequent problems. So they became better problem solvers because they paid attention to their mistakes and they thought about the mistakes. And they did that uh, in part because they thought that they could become smarter. And what that tells me, like if you look at these people, they're all just solving problems. They're all performing. That's what we do at work, right? We solve problems. But some of us are just kind of looking for what we're doing well. That's what we're paying attention to and thinking about. And some of us are also like thinking about what's surprising, what mistakes we're making, what what feedback we can have from our colleagues and from our customers. And so, and that doesn't take much time. I mean, it's just about uh, paying attention to things that we can learn. And that is the biggest opportunity for most of us. And it, it doesn't take any more time. Now, if, if you want to be like a great basketball player or soccer player, um, their deliberate practice is important and, and making time for deliberate practice that does really take time or a violinist or, you know, a ballerina. Um, but for most of us in kind of uh, 21st century kind of knowledge work, uh, it's really about how we work, not about building blocks of time to, to focus only on the learning zone, even though that's also helpful, right? So that we can, we can, we can grow to make more time for the learning zone. So when I, I listen to podcasts like Getting Smart, right? I might be on my bike or I might be walking the dog. And so how, what are times where I can uh, engage in the learning zone that might, might be not taking, be very taxing? Yeah, as you talk about deliberate practice, because I think you referenced that in your book, deliberate versus purposeful, where deliberate is where you have like a, a kind of a subject matter expert that's walking alongside you as you're trying to perfect like a particular skill versus like purposeful, which is kind of more of a, an agency driven um, practice where you're kind of learning on your own. And so how does that, how can that relate back into the classroom? Because I think there's space for both. There's space for students to engage and deliver it. And then there's space. So how can an educator create that sort of practice for students and walk them through that? Sure. Well, first, I think that um, many students, including when I was growing up, uh, we get the sense that school is a place to perform. School is a performance zone. Um, and I think we get that sense because a lot of the work, if not all the work, gets graded with a number or a letter on it. Um, and so anything, when anytime we're evaluating somebody else or assessing uh, like the, the, perf the perfection of a work, um, it, it sends a message that what we would like students to do ideally is to get everything 100%, right? That we want that the ideals for them to be always getting 100 in everything they do at, at school. And so that sends a message. That's what, you know, we want you to do the things you already know how to do. And you want, we want you to not make any mistakes. That's what we value the most. That's what we celebrate. Uh, as opposed to, um, yes, assessments are really important. Kids need, but do that, doing that infrequently in terms of the grading, right? When we are ready to, to assess whether we have learned the skills, 
we, we do want to know whether kids have learned the, the skills and it's important for them to know where they have learned the skills. But most of the time to learn those skills, they should be in the learning zone. So instead of putting a, a letter or a number on, on things, we need to give feedback on the work itself, on like where are we making mistakes and what can we learn from those mistakes, whether it's the teacher doing that or peers or self-reflection. Um, it's about if, if we're doing kind of problems like math problems, it's not about like getting the person who knows how to do the problem to explain it and then moving to the next problem. It's the opposite. It's like, okay, like now that's great. This is how it's done. But but who made a mistake. Let's talk about that mistake. Let's think about what went wrong. What can we learn from this mistake? All right, let's go to the next mistake. And spending a lot more time, because we want to be challenging ourselves with things that we don't know. We have to expect not to do them perfectly. And then the mistakes that we make are how we learn. So let's like spend a lot of time, you know, dissecting those mistakes. Um, and so when you think about um, who people are getting feedback from, that could be from peers or a teacher or themselves. But what's really important is to not be evaluating all the time, but be focused on stretching beyond the known and making mistakes and learning from those mistakes. So this is your, like the learn while doing that you reference. Uh, yeah, yeah, it could be learned, that, that could be learned while doing, or it could be, you know, deliberate, like focused uh, learning zone time. Uh, either way, it shouldn't be performance. Like school shouldn't be mostly a place where you are judging the excellence of student work. Yeah. And you mentioned your mindset work. And I know that you are heavily influenced by Carol Dweck. You you said that, you know, you were glad that you kind of got denied. And so when you came back and was accepted, um, that's when uh, Carol was there in order to like really focus in on that mindset work. And that opened up a lot of thinking for you. Uh, you've already kind of referenced it. But um, can you elaborate on the role of a growth mindset in conjunction with effective strategies and habits for fostering growth? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, when I applied to grad school, I didn't get in. And uh, two years later, I got in and it was amazing because that's when Carol Dweck uh, ended up being at Stanford. I met her and um, we, we partnered and uh, she's been a dear mentor uh, for 16 years. So in a growth mindset, um, it's, it's really important right, to, be, to understand that we can change and that other people can change, that our abilities and qualities are malleable. And we all are in a fixed mindset some of the time. And so it's just important to become aware of that and think about whether that's how we want to be thinking. In some cases, the answer might be yes. In some cases, the answer might be no. Um, but we want to become more aware of what fixed mindsets we, we do have and whether they're serving us well and whether that's truly what we believe. Um, but a, a growth mindset is something people tend to get really excited about. And first, we tend to distort it into other things. So if I ask people, what does a growth mindset mean to you? Uh, we might get lots of different answers, like it's being open-minded or it's persevering or it's working hard. And a growth mindset is none of those things. A growth mindset is a perspective about the nature of human beings. It's the belief that we can change. And it, it's important because if, we're, if we don't believe that we can change, then we are not going to do the things that are necessary for us to change, right? Um, now, that's it's, it's very important, but it's, it's not sufficient. We also, in addition to having the belief that we can change, we also need to know how to change. What are effective strategies for us to change and to improve? And that's where kind of the learning zone comes in, right? And the more that we understand the learning zone and, and how to engage in it, the more that we can support a growth mindset because the more that a growth mindset belief is true, you know, the more effective and competent that we are at changing and improving, the more that we can change and improve. And so these things kind of self-reinforce each other. And I would say, so 
when, you know, if you ask me the question of like, what makes for a motivated and effective learner? I would say, first is growth mindset, the belief that we can change. Second is the understanding of how to change and improve and founded on the learning zone, but also lots of learning strategies that we can come to see. Third is having a why, a purpose. Like, you know, what do we care about? What do I care about? What do I want to get better at? Because these things take effort, both the performance zone and the learning zone take effort. So why are we engaging in that effort? And finally, like, am I, do I feel like I'm part of a learning community, like where I feel like I belong, but also when I look around, other people love to learn. They love to ask questions. They love to solicit feedback. They share what they're working to improve. And I, am I engaging in those behaviors with them? When those four conditions are true, then we are kind of really kind of strong, motivated and effective learners. How do you make that? become true for students, like just that last piece, that learning community, because when they're in school, you know, I think a lot, I know a lot of teachers do a really good job of helping students try to uncover that why, but maybe students don't always appreciate being a part of a larger learning community. And so how do you foster that kind of love and appreciation, like when they're in those younger grades or maybe even in the older grades um, to just to, to see the value? Well, I think that uh, kids are amazing, motivated, and effective learners before they get to school, right? Mm -hmm. When we're really young, we are asking questions all the time. We're experimenting. We're tinkering. We're doing things that fail. And, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't like shame us. Like we just kind of laugh and try again. And um, it is when kids start going to school that they there's research that shows that they they their their number of questions they ask each day plummets right and so i think that it is actually like the structure of school is a big reason why we end up not being in in a learning community right um and that is kind of the experience that i had when i started going to school you know it was the teacher who was talking at me and it was the teacher was talking at me at things that i didn't care about it might have been like names of people in history that I didn't care about or that I couldn't relate to or places that I had no idea I couldn't imagine. Um, and I, I learned the most impactful thing that I learned was that learning sucks. It's, it's boring. It's irrelevant. It's useless. And so I think that it's actually like if we, if, if we really focus on how much learning can make our life better and just like how amazing school can be, what a privilege it can be to be, to be exploring and discovering and discovering more about each other and learning different perspectives and experiences that we have and making mistakes and learning from those mistakes. Um, it's, it's something that um, I think if we start at an early age, like it becomes a lot easier because then we don't have to kind of uh, correct the, 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 I think the damage that some of the structures have created. And it's not, it's not like teachers are doing anything like to, to hurt students. It's just that schools have, have never been uh, tasked with the job of developing motivated and effective lifelong learners. That's never been on the standards. That's never been what schools have been asked to do. And I think part of the reason is that um, we have focused schools on teaching what's easy to quantify um, and, and not what's most important. And so if, if, if we haven't kind of been focused on fostering those things that I think are most important, uh, and I, I think that's why some of the work that you're doing at Getting Smart at trying to quantify these hard to quantify things is so important because then 
I, I think, you know, without that, right, without being able to quantify those most important things, any, any educator can foster this environment in their classroom, right? By, by creating, you know, projects or, or learning experiences that are really fun and, and interesting and valuable to kids and to the people who can benefit from them. Um, and so we can operate from any kind of standard framework and structures, but then it, it puts a lot of burden on the teachers to, to, to do something differently than what the system is, is designed to do and is telling it. So we can also uh, change the system so that uh, we, are, we can measure these things and we can assess what we're doing at a systemic level with these things. But you know, regardless, before we get there, we can, we can still you know, do a lot of these practices in the classrooms. And so whether it's at the leadership level or in the classroom level, there can be a commitment to learning and it can start small. It can can start with a simple challenge and you have like five steps to go through to in order to like submit that commitment to learning and then it can grow. What are those steps that a leader or a teacher can take in their classroom to to commit to that? Well, you know, I I don't think that um, there's uh, like a algorithm that applies everywhere because I think humans are complex, our relationships are complex, our situations are complex. And so I think part of how we influence and how we design our schools, like our designs can be different. But I think some things to think about. Uh, One is to become clear about what you value and what you want to, what competences do you want to foster in kids, right? So again, your work about, you know, the, the portrait of a graduate and what are the competencies that you want to develop in, in, in students that you think are going to set them up to succeed and thrive in, in the 21st century. What, what do we most value and want, what do we want to foster? That's a really important thing to align on to and to start discussing about how do we want to foster and develop those things in kids. Um, and then once you kind of start unpacking that, um, getting into a learning community as a staff, you know, often, you know, whether it's principals feel isolated from other principals or teachers feel isolated from other teachers, uh, we're in our classrooms, we might not be in conversation in PLCs with others. So finding like a, a, a spaces and habits and structures and tools that you can be in conversation with your peers so that you are sharing what you're trying in your classroom, getting ideas on what to try differently, sharing your results of how that's working, and engaging in continuous learning and you know with each other because more brains are smarter than one brain, especially if we bring kind of different perspectives and experience and knowledge to the table. Yeah, and then how do they take that then to magnify the impact of what they're doing so that it's not just staying in like this little like space, but really like kind of reverberating in in order to create systemic change and to to continue to be in that learning zone versus like the performance paradox. Absolutely. You know, there are so many great classrooms and schools that are doing such great work. And again, that's part of what you do. You magnify and 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 point to those examples in, in your podcast and in the rest of the work that you do at Getting Smart. So yes, how do we do what's best for the kids that are under my purview? But then how can other people benefit from that as well? Yes. Okay. Well, great. Um, well, kind of the last thing I just want to touch on are just like some strategies um, that, and you've talked about, you've talked about the strategies in order to, to foster a strong commitment to learning. Um, but then you also have some strategies around like taking notes of the problem, devising experiments and things of that nature so that when they're 
there isn't maybe like a built-in community, but you're trying to like build a learning community um, and you're trying to get people on board, how you can devise different experiments to kind of remove the, this is the way we've always done things. And so what are some steps to walk us through that for any life system that might encounter some resistance when they want to live more in the learning zone? Sure. So when, when people are, uh, in, um, trying to embark on this journey uh, or getting started and it might be encountering resistance or like ways to get started. Um, a couple of ideas uh, that kind of I've seen work. One is to like start a conversation with whatever your circle circle of people is. So you could uh, share a resource. I, I did um, an 11 minute TED talk on the learning zone and the performance zone, for example, that some teams have found helpful to, to watch either together or asynchronously and then come together and think about how are we doing with regards to first, does this resonate? Do we want to like engage in both the learning zone and the performance zone? How are we doing with it? And what could it look like here? What should we work on together? Now, to your point about resistance, sometimes we might find that some people in that circle might be resistant. Uh, actually, what we most often find, and almost always actually, is like the vast majority of people really want this, right? They're like, yes, we want more learning zone. Let's do it. They might have like challenges. They might say like, I'm not sure like we, we have so much we don't have time or, you know, there's there's this challenge about like too much testing or, or whatever challenge it is, but they want it, right? Uh, now, there might be some people who are more resistant to it. One thing that I would uh, encourage people to do is to f focus more on the people who are on board and ready uh, because there's so much to benefit to, to, to building on the strengths. You, you always want to be inviting other people and like, you know, inviting them along. But if they're resistant, I think it's okay to like, let them be resistant for some time, right? And you can like continue your messaging, um, continue showing the examples and show success with the people who are more ready and ready to engage in collaborating and trying these different strategies. Um, and as you see results and you celebrate that, and you make progress with those kids, then other people in the sidelines will see, A, that you really care. Because if you if leaders are saying, you know, we want people to be, you know, taking risks and making mistakes and learn from them and talking about what we can improve, some people might say, ah, I'm not sure that they're really on board. They might be just saying this. And there are sometimes leaders that I don't know if they believe it or they 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 there's cognitive dissonance where they are talking a lot of things, but then they're not showing that they themselves are learners, right? Or that they really value it. They might actually encourage people to take risks, but then only celebrate when those risks turn out to be successes. And so then people say, oh, what we really care about is when things go flawless, not when we actually take a real risk that might generate in failure. So instead, you know, we want to celebrate the, the smart risk taking and the lessons that come from it, not just, you know, the, the, the successful achievement. Um, but uh, so I would say, like, work with the people who are more on board, more ready, and then continue to invite people along the way. And then at some point, if you're trying different strategies and having conversations and saying, hey, we've agreed to these values, we've agreed to soliciting feedback all the time or to inviting other people into your classroom so they can observe you and give you feedback. And I don't see this happening with you. Is that how you see it, what are things are getting in the way? Am I think, are there things that I am doing or not doing that are making it harder for you? You know, how can I better support you? Um, and at some point, if people are really, really resistant and they don't want it, then, you know, you can part ways. But, but, but I think this, this, this work tends to grow as because it tends to start 
on a on a on a strong note because people gravitate toward it. And then if you if you build those systems and habits for continuous improvement, then the work continues to grow over time. Well, thank you, Eduardo. What I appreciate is that this the your book, the performance paradox, is not only you know for individuals who are in the workplace, but also it can live within the classrooms as you um, so eloquently exhibited. Um, so thank you for allowing us to see the difference between the learning zone, the performance zone, helping to understand the space um, for both and how to create some really effective strategies to have the greatest impact in order to reflect in our experiences where we learn the most. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Shani, for having me. And, and I would just add that you know, sometimes we, in a, in a growth mindset world, sometimes we start seeing performance as something that's negative, something that we want to always be learning and not performing. And that's that's not true either. Like performance is really important, is how we get things done, is how we contribute. And so we want to, um, the, you know, part of the value of the learning zone is because it enables us to perform higher, but it also makes the process much more fun and fulfilling along the way, right? We are we discover more, we, de- we develop re- deeper relationships with the people around us. Um, and it is engaging in both of these zones, not just in one of them, that will make kind of school and life better. Thank you. We need both. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Getting Smart podcast today. We want this podcast to be actionable, insightful, and a great way to learn about what's next in learning. In order to stay on the cutting edge, we need people in the field to tell us what they're hearing, what they're wanting, and what they're needing to learn more about. Got a topic or a guest in mind? Send your recommendations to me, Mason at gettingsmart.com. And if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to leave a review in Apple Podcasts or subscribe wherever you listen. Feel free to share the podcast on social media using the hashtag GSPodcasts. Thanks so much.